Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week, we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 322, The Oedipus Plays, baby. Julia, we did a version of these in high school, and I think it was not appropriate. No, it super wasn't. It super wasn't. That's just my view. That's just my thought. My, like, weird opinion that maybe high schoolers should not be enacting the story of Oedipus. But hey, uh, you know what? I I wasn't in charge. I agree. Yeah, so we're doing the Oedipus plays this week. I don't remember a lot of the details of it very well. So I reread them fairly recently for this episode. And... Wow, it's a lot more wild and heartbreaking than I remember it being. Uh, I feel like most people know Oedipus, you know, from the Oedipal complex and Freud and the whole, oh, you want to sleep with your mom thing. But I really think it kind of misses the whole point of the place to begin with. So really? I wanted to I wanted to revisit that and talk about like what Sophocles and the story of Oedipus is actually trying to say. And it's not, hey, men want to sleep with their moms. Incredible. Let's do it. Amanda, what do you remember about these plays other than the fact that they were wildly inappropriate for high schoolers? Well, we wore tunics that were just fully made out of like muslin cloth or or an off brand that I appreciated because they were size inclusive and I was not relegated to the, you know, dresses in size 18 and up uh, back in the in the uh, costume uh, closet. No, but I mostly remember the beats of the Freudian application of, you know, there is a, a prophecy, everything is completely avoidable, which is what I mostly think when I uh, read Greek tragedies, of the tragedies that it was avoidable and that it's self-created to some extent, and that there are a lot of anxieties around masculinity, about power, about legacy. And I remember it really not being about the women whatsoever. Mm, interesting. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to get started because you, you pointed out a lot of things, and I think you're going to find it really interesting for us to revisit. There's also a lot to go through here, so let's get into it, and hopefully this is a nice, chunky episode for our listeners. I'm ready. What is really interesting, at least to me, about the Oedipus plays, which I, I guess I didn't know or had forgotten, was that the story of Oedipus consisted of three plays all written by Sophocles, right? And Sophocles wrote and performed the first part, which is actually Antigone, in 441 BCE. And then it took him about 12 years to write and perform the next play, which is Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King, which is even more interesting, at least in my mind, because Oedipus Rex acts as a prequel to the original Antigone. Really? So people have been pulling a George Lucas since the beginning of time. They truly have. They truly have. And also, like, I just want to point this out. If you're a writer and you're listening to this and you you ever want to feel, like, better about yourself, like, maybe, like, oh, I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. Oh, I wish, like, more people read the things that I was writing. Uh, just keep in mind that when Oedipus Rex was performed at the Dionysia Festival Play Competition, which is where these were performed for the first time, it came in second. It came wow. in second. I can't believe we have records of the placement at that festival. I know. Isn't that wild? So one of the most famous plays in all of history came in second. So you're doing great comparatively. Don't worry about it. Good reminder. And then, Amanda, the final play, which was written shortly before Sophocles' death, was called Oedipus at Colonus. We'll very briefly touch on that at the end because there's, like, not a ton going on. And it acts as kind of a middle play for Oedipus Rex, then Oedipus at Colonus, and then Antigone. Gotcha. A real episode 451 situation. Exactly. Precisely. So the timeline, again, like, chronologically was... 
released as released like it was a fucking movie. Antigone, Oedipus Rex, and then Oedipus at Colonus. But the chronological events within the plays themselves are Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and then Antigone. Cool. Also, as we get started, just a heads up, as is often the case with Greek tragedies, these plays feature several suicides. So all I ask is that our conspirators keep that in mind as we get into these stories. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. And that's totally fine. Great news. There's 321 other episodes that you can use to fill the spirits shaped void in your week this week. That is true. That is true. So let's start with Antigone, even though it's chronologically last, because I think it's better to read it in the way that Sophocles originally wrote and performed it. Let's do it. So we open on the city of Thebes at night. We're introduced to Antigone and Ismene, who are the daughters of Oedipus. And they are talking between the two of them about how their brothers, Polynices and Eteocles, are fighting over control of the city. And now they've just found out that they've killed each other in the process. Hell of an opening scene, I gotta say. Absolutely wild. They're in mourning. The brothers' troops have retreated, and now their father, Oedipus's brother-in-law, whose name is Creon, has been ruling the city ever since. So Antigone is extremely upset and angry because Creon has made this announcement that anyone who tried to bury or even mourn for Polynices would be put to death because he considers him a traitor. But even by Greek standards, that is going too far. To deny someone burial rights is a big, big deal. And that's basically what this whole play is about, right? Reminds me a lot of our hospitality discussions. It's like the ultimate final act of hospitality. A little context for before and the original mythology of this story, the curse that is on Oedipus's house is because his father, his like father's father had broken hospitality laws because he had brought in a ward from another city state. Mm. and the ward had been killed while in his custody. So he broke those hospitality laws and angered the gods. Wow. Again, Amanda, you're picking up on all the cues that I wasn't even like prepared to tell you about, but I love it. It's almost like I've been doing this for seven years, baby. Oh my God. So as many is like, well, it, it sucks, but there's nothing that we can really do about it. But Antigone is like, well, actually, fuck that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bury my brother and you should help me. As many is like, listen, don't get me wrong. Uh, Polynices is my brother, too. And I loved him, but I don't want to be put to death. And Creon is the king now. We have to listen to what he says. Antigone absolutely dresses her sister down. And she says, and here's a quote from the play. Go away, as many. I shall be hating you soon, and the dead will too, for your words are hateful. Leave me my foolish play. I am not afraid of the danger. If it means death, it will not be the worst of deaths. Death without honor. Oh my god. Absolutely wrecks her sister here. It's like this is still relevant 2,500 years later, baby. Exactly. So basically, like... Antigone here is saying, fuck the law, honor and love for my brother is more important than the law and the death that may come for me. Julia, I just watched Andor and I I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you finally got around to that, by the way. I, oh my God, I yeah, we have, to, we have to discuss it another time. So the plays in classic Greek fashion utilize the chorus as a way of like kind of setting scenes and kind of delicious. Giving, we love the chorus in a Greek tragedy. We love it. So in this play, they basically play the elders of Thebes who they're like praising the city. They put down Polynices, who's the brother that was basically considered the traitor. They say like, oh, his desire to be king nearly destroyed the entire city. We don't like that. That's that's bad. I mean, seems like a fair read. 
Yeah. Creon enters then at being like, okay, everyone, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I've got things handled. Everything is going to be fine now. I'm the king now. Don't worry about it. It's all good. I'm sure this is not in here for dramatic irony purposes. <laughs> no, of course not. So he also announces to the citizens that the the other brother, Ediocles, the one who was fighting Polynices, he would have a hero's burial, which like, meanwhile, he's like, the other brother can just fucking rot. Don't even worry about it. We're not going to even let him be buried. No one is going to mourn for him. The chorus, as the citizens are like, great, got it. That sounds good. We, <laughs> we agree with what you're saying here. Just then, a messenger comes in and reports that, scandal, someone has already given proper burial rights to Polynices, but no one is sure who did it. Mm. Can I just say, Julia, this is a really important sidebar, that I feel like messengers are always the hottest people in high school plays. If you're playing like a messenger, if you're playing a trickster, if you're playing certainly puck or a puckish figure, you're probably going to be attractive specifically to me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Amanda, great sidebar. So I'm just I'm just headcasting this as, uh, you know, a, a real puckish figure. <laughs> so the chorus is like, ooh, uh, maybe the gods stepped in and gave him a proper burial. An incredible excuse. I love that. Yeah. And Creon is like, that's absurd. The gods would never help a traitor. It was probably one of Polynices' followers that's still hiding in the city. So he tells the messenger that if no suspect is found, that he would have the messenger himself put to death. Not my crush! Yeah, not your crush. Also, it feels like a real origin of Don't Shoot the Messenger here. I'm not sure if it's the actual origin, but it feels yeah. really early on for it. So I love it. Yeah, it, it really does. Yeah. So this messenger, the sentry hearing this is like, I'm gonna leave now and just bounces out of there. Yeah, no amount of money is worth it. Uh, exactly. Yes. But instead, the next scene we see is with Antigone and the messenger returns with her, having accused her of being the one who buried Polynices and calls for King Creon, right? So he tells Creon that the messenger and some of the other sentries had started digging up the body of Polynices under Creon's order, but they were blinded by a sudden dust storm. Feels like a godly intervention. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And when they like were able to see again, they saw Antigone, one, cursing them and also trying to rebury Polynices' body. Pretty airtight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they are like, what are you doing? We're going to bring you to Creon. She goes with them. Antigone denies nothing. She says she knew about the decree, but did it anyway, but says that by doing so, she didn't defy justice or the gods, but rather the will of an unjust man totally dissing Creon here. Incredible. Absolutely. Just like she's here, like serving up justice. That is what Antigone is here for. It's giving justice, Julia. It really is. So the chorus starts gossiping at this point, because that's what a Greek chorus does most of the time. Being like, wow, Antigone, you're just like your father, all that passionate wildness. And at this point, we don't like, I mean, we know who Oedipus is, but like Oedipus has not been really introduced to the story and wouldn't be for a dozen years, which is wild. But Creon at this point is like, okay, fuck this. I will not be insulted in my own home. He calls for Ismene and then declares that both of the daughters of Oedipus will be put to death because he's blaming them both on this. Okay. I mean, classic baby with bathwater situation. Mm -hmm. So Antigone, uh, while they're waiting for Ismene to arrive, just completely, absolutely wrecks through him. She's saying that he's all talk, how burying her brother is going to bring her glory, how the citizens of Thebes support her and what she did, but they're too afraid of Creon to do anything about it. 
And then she also tells him that both of her brothers deserve proper burials, that justice of the gods calls for her to act with love and not to hold grudges. And Creon should as well. Damn, Antigone. Yeah. And Creon is like, um, I'm not going to have a woman tell me what to do in my own home. Excuse <laughs> you. Oh, I, I know Creon's going to die because it's a Greek tragedy, uh, but uh, good. I look forward to it. Yes. So at this point, as many shows up, just a mess, crying, all that kind of thing. And she goes, yeah, I'll share in the blame with Antigone. Aww. Even though she said that she wouldn't want to be involved at this point, right? Right, right. Antigone turns on her and goes, oh, now you want credit when you were too afraid to do this with me before, huh, coward? I see how it is. Sisters, ma'am. Yeah. So uh, Creon steps in and says, okay, you're both clearly crazy. Like, he accuses them of, of going mad in the grief of losing their brothers. But as many, again, is like, okay, like, you can put me to death, but what about your son, Haman? Like, Haman is engaged to Antigone, and he loves her, but, like, would you actually, like, put your son's betrothed to death? Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Creon is absolutely not moved by this argument at all, because having his son marry someone who he considers a traitor is disgusting. This is about him, Julia. His child marriage is about him and his legacy. It's all about him. It's all about him. It's always been about him. And so he orders that the guards take the two sisters away. At this point, the chorus does a bit about like just the history of the House of Oedipus, how wild it is that they're always surrounded by all this death and sorrow. And then they like pray to Zeus. They're like, your laws always trump the laws of men. Maybe step in here and do something about this. CBD. Don't count on it. Mm, Probably not. So around then, Haemon, who is uh, Creon's son, enters and the chorus gossips about what he must think of his fiance's arrest. They're like, oh, my God, what's going on? Are you all good? (laughs) Creon at this point is also very curious about this. And he's like, so, uh, hey, are you going to side with me or with your girl? And Haemon is like, don't worry, Dad. No woman is more important than you, my father, familial ties forever. It's all good, right? Okay, predictable. Creon, obviously pleased by this. Totally is like, ah, yes, my ego boosted a little bit. I did a good job raising this person who is not an autonomous person of his own, but an extension of me. Exactly. And then Haemon tells him about some gossip that he heard among the citizens who think that Antigone really doesn't deserve the punishment for what she did. And Haemon is like, listen, I'm going to obey your laws, but do you really think this is the right course of action, Dad? Like, are you sure this is like the hill you want to die on? And of course, that is insults Creon, who is pissed that his citizens would tell, like, even think to tell him how to rule and claims like, no, I'm the king. I have absolute authority. No one else gets to tell me how to deal with the situation, right? Yeah, what's right is what he decides. Of course. And Haman goes from, like, being the real, like, obedient child to immediately being like, you're just stubborn and you're proud. And Creon, in response, calls him a slave of woman. <laughs> You're not my real dad. You're not my real dad. (laughs) Uh, Which is a problem later. (laughs) Yeah, right. This is giving real when one of my parents was mad at the other. They'd say like, oh, your daughter did this. Oh, yeah. Okay, guys. All right. I see what's happening. I'm everyone's child, actually. But I'm both of your child and also a person. Yes. So Haman is very clearly angry at this accusation. He implies that death might result in the death of someone else. Creon takes that as like, oh, you're going to kill me if I kill your fiance. And it's like, oh, yeah, want to bet? And so calls for the guards to bring Antigone out right then and there. And he's like, I'm going to kill her right in front of you. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm going to kill her right in front of you. Uh And Haman is like, 
actually, no, I don't want to see you anymore. And just like flees. Not the best look. Not the best look, but like uh, better than having his father like actually go through with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And watch his fiance die right in front of him. Once Heyman runs off, Creon admits to the chorus. He's like, listen, I'm going to let as many live, but I am still going to kill Antigone. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to enclose her in a tomb while she's still alive. A classic way of killing someone without like like inadvertently killing someone. Like we talked about that with the uh, the Vestal Virgins as well as a way of like, if the gods want to intervene, they can, but I am still sentencing this person to death. I uh, went to a lecture recently about Kashrut and uh, the laws of what makes something kosher and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And this won't surprise you, Julia. Rabbis get really technical in details about like, okay, but if you hit a lever that operates a machine that kills an animal, like does that still count? And it's fascinating and goes so level, so many levels deep. And uh, this is really giving me, you know, a simplified version of that same logical chain. Amanda, rabbis discussing stuff in detail and making arguments about like little like hypotheticals. I've never heard of that before. My people, Julia, my people. So Creon goes off, leaves the stage. The chorus sings a bit about how love is such a powerful force that it can drive men mad, how it cannot be defeated by weapons. And then when Antigone approaches on stage, the chorus calls to her and says that even they would rebel if they saw her put to death. So the, the chorus has turned. Oh, yeah. Very quickly <laughs> against Korea. I'm specifically picturing them as like a bunch of nans, like a bunch of grandmas. And I think it's an excellent head casting. Just a bunch of aunties. We love to see it. Yes. So Antigone speaks to the chorus saying that her death is a noble one. But the chorus is like, well, I mean, is it noble or are you just like giving into your pride? classic an anti question yeah and then they're like because you're really acting like your father once did and this pisses antigone off she's like how dare you so at this point creon shows up again and again is not moved by any of antigone's arguments or anything like that he orders the guards to take her to her tomb but before they do antigone makes like this one more kind of like out of desperation move sure She tells Creon that she would not have defied his orders if it had been her husband or her children, because these were familial roles that could be replaced. Could you explain to me what that means? Basically, her argument is why she did this for her brother was both of her parents are dead already, right? She has no more other options or like no more other siblings can be born to her. Interesting. I don't endorse it, but I do get the logic of like, I can get another husband. I can have another kid. Like this is a little bit finite. Exactly. Exactly. So so because her her brother was the last son of the House of Oedipus, he was like irreplaceable. And that's why she felt she needed to honor him in this way. I understand. And really smart. They may not, you know, respect her like personhood or grief. But from a legal perspective, I think it's a thing that a king can understand. Absolutely. Creon does not understand, (laughs) does not appreciate the argument whatsoever. Well, good try. Orders her to be taken away. And Antigone cries out that the city is run by cowards and that she is being punished for revering the gods. All right. I I see that she's a dramatic bitch, but you know what? She's our dramatic bitch. She is. She is. Uh, At this point, offstage, she is walled alive in her tomb. And the chorus like makes this huge proclamation and places her among the other mythological heroes that shared a similar fate. Wow. One thing I appreciate about Greek plays, Julia, they really don't require much in the way of sets. They really have the big items happen off stage, which I appreciate. Yes, of course. Kind of like Shakespeare in mm-hmm. a way. He's like, I know we're not going to get the forest of Dunsinane into the globe right now. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Just give everyone some branches. It's fine. Give, give him a branch. Have him march. It'll be fine. So, Amanda, you would think that this is the end of the play, but nope. It's not. It's not? 
It's not. So instead, the next scene sees a boy leading the blind soothsayer uh, Tiresias. Tiresias. We know him from poetry. Exactly. So Creon totally respects Tiresias and is like, what should I do? I'll listen to whatever you say, right? He's like, well-respected soothsayer and prophet. Tell me what the deal is. And Tiresias is like, listen, my dude, you fucked up this whole situation. A little late. I'm gonna bring a curse of the gods onto the city. And Creon instantly turns against him at that point. He's like, <laughs> what the fuck, man? Like, what? You're, you're a false prophet. You're just being power hungry. You can't tell me what to do. Even though he said just before, he's like, I'll listen to whatever you have to say. That must be a fun scene to play. Oh, absolutely. So Tiresias, again, is like, you've pissed off the gods because you messed with the laws of the gods by not providing the rights for the dead. Like, oh, Antigone and everyone else told you. Whoa, shocking, right? He's like, well, maybe if you'd listened to what the gods demand of you, none of this would have happened, right? Damn. Tiresias is like, I'm done with you. Is led away, leaves Creon and the chorus alone. The chorus is freaked out by this prophecy that Tiresias has, has left there. And Creon is like, okay, yes, whatever. What should I do, Chorus? And they demand that Antigone be freed, and Creon reluctantly leaves to go do so. Finally listening to some reason. I'm going to sense and predict that because this is a Greek play, she's already dead. Well, Amanda, you're right. Everything happened way too late. The Chorus remains, and then a messenger runs in to tell them that, first off, Haman died by suicide. Okay. At the same time, Eurydice, not from Orpheus and Eurydice, but Creon's wife Eurydice, shows up, demands to know what happens. He tells her that when Creon had finished like the burial of Polynices, they heard a cry from Antigone's tomb. And when they got there, they found Antigone, who was also already dead by suicide. And Haman took a sword to try to attack his father, missed, and then turned it on himself. Oh, okay. There it is. So Creon then enters carrying Haman's body and crying, realizing that his actions led to his son's death. Eurydice at this point also offstage has died by suicide after hearing about what happened to her son. And the messenger tells Creon that she had called down curses upon her husband right before she died. There's a lot of calling down curses on people in these plays just as a rule of thumb. Yeah. Well, I'm getting real prequel vibes because this is going to have a lot of, of impact for what happens next. Exactly. So Creon begs the gods to put him out of his misery, but he gets no response and his guards lead him away. And then we close with the chorus who sings how those with too much pride will always be punished by the gods. Quote, there is no happiness where there is no wisdom, no wisdom but in submission to the gods. Big words are always punished and proud men in old age learn to be wise. Damn, what a powerful image to close on. Yeah. And then we close on Antigone. And let's take a quick break because that was a lot. And then we'll pick up with Oedipus Rex. Okay, let's do it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Refill. Welcome, most especially, if I may say so, to Hannah and Nicole, our newest patrons. Thank you so, so much for making some time in your life and your budget to support a podcast like Spirits. You join the distinguished ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica, Measlekins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan Malachi, Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, and Zazie, and the legends themselves. 
Daniels, Ariana Audra, Bex, Chibi Yokai, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BMEF Scotty. You too can be named and thanked in our refill right on here by joining and becoming a patron at patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Now, I was very encouraged by the number of you who enjoyed the show that I recommended in uh, the last refill, Pressure Cooker. God, it was so good. And I just also wanted to say that if you have not watched the new season of The Mole, you gotta. It's an incredible reality show. Somebody is lying. Somebody is trying to sabotage the other people in the competition. And it is so incredibly satisfying. I have ended up like watching some Twitch streams with people from The Mole. A lot of them are active, you know, on social media and, you know, in their own right. And the cast was just fabulous. And the show is well designed. It looks expensive in the way that like they really in invested in set design and did such a good job of making these challenges feel really interesting and really like compel me to keep watching. So that is The Mole. It is streamable on Netflix and you should seriously check it out. Also helpful, also a thing you should check out is if you would consider texting a friend who you think would like Spirits, a link to an episode that you have really enjoyed recently and be like, hey, uh, I think you'd love this episode because A, B, C, and D. Maybe it's this episode. Maybe it's a hometown urban legends. Maybe it's a, a guest episode with an interview with somebody who's fabulous. Maybe it's a roundup or a movie review of a movie you know that they love. It can be any episode. The point is you choosing one and saying to a friend, hey, I think you specifically would love this specifically and this is why is a lovely gift to your friend. And it's a lovely gift to us. The main way that podcasts grow is by you telling friends. And I'm sure you, a listener, know that most of the podcasts you hear about and love, you hear about from your friends and from people you trust. And it is such a lovely service to us. We are trying to bring you bigger and better stuff this year in year eight, question mark, of our podcast. And it is very helpful to see the audience growing along as we keep trying to level up the show year after year. So thank you. We are doing lots of great stuff over at Multitude. And something that I wanted to make sure you're aware of is our newest member show, Pale Blue Pod. This is an astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. It is hosted by astrophysicist Dr. Moya McTeer and comedian Corinne Caputo, who demystifies space one topic at a time with open eyes, open arms, and open mouths from all the laughing and the jaw dropping. The show is incredible. I look forward to it every single week. Friend of the show, past and future guest Misha Stanton sound designs it and every episode takes place in a different cozy location where you are you know under a tent in the rain or in a lovely greenhouse or in someone's grandma's kitchen as you're learning about these wonderful and sometimes overwhelming but always amazing parts of the universe there are new episodes every single Monday wherever you get your podcasts so go ahead and subscribe now to pale blue pod we are sponsored this week by Calm. And guys, I've been going through it a bit recently. I'm not going to lie to you. Lots of stuff that I want to do better in my life. Lots of stuff that I am worried about. Lots of anxious and negative thoughts keeping me up at night, especially when I lay down to try to sleep and my body is tired, but my brain is like, aha, a perfect time to think about all of the things we need to do or should have done better or don't like about ourselves. And that's really rude. And, you know, I, I do what I can to practice all the habits that I need to stop 
those thoughts from coming, but you can't always control that. And so one thing that I find incredibly comforting is going to the Calm app to use their soundscapes or their meditations or their sleep stories to help me get to sleep. Because if I'm not sleeping well, I know nothing else in my life is going to feel doable. When I'm well rested, I know I can take on my day. So for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. We are also sponsored this week by Third Love. It would be incredible if when I got dressed, I felt confident and excited and ready to take on the day and not like my clothes are fighting with me. And more and more in my life, I'm realizing that uh, life is too short to wear uncomfortable clothes. And that starts and is never more true than with uncomfortable bras. They pinch, they make me feel bad, they fall down, they make my clothes look weird. But more than anything else, I feel wrong instead of the clothes feeling wrong for me. Do you know what I mean? And what I really appreciate is that Third Love has a fitting room quiz where they really normalize the fact that your bra size changes a lot over your life, on average six times. And I'm probably well past that. They make it easy to find your perfect bra size with their virtual fitting room, which has helped over 20 million bra wearers find their perfect bra size. And they've got the perfect fit promise where you have free returns and exchanges for 60 days. Ditch bad bras, get a better one that makes you look and feel great. Upgrade your bra and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash spirits. That's 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com slash spirits. And finally, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. All of the things that make me feel upset, tired, dejected, uh, like I can't take on my day and like I'm not excited for my life, which I hate feeling like because I work really hard for my life and I'm really lucky to have a life that I think fits me really well. And it is a real shame when feeling like I am not showing up as fully as I want to for my friends and my loved ones, my family, it holds me back from enjoying what I do have. And trying to be at my best, which means treating myself well and liking my life and having the energy and the time and the bandwidth to show up for others is something that I really depend on therapy for. It's a way to have somebody who's in my corner there to advocate for me and help me and guide me in thinking about how I can make things better for myself so I can show up more for the people in my life that I love. It's so, so important and I don't know what I'd do without it. If you're thinking giving therapy a try, I definitely recommend you start with BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. All you have to do to get matched with a licensed therapist is fill out a brief questionnaire. And if you don't vibe with that person, you can switch anytime for no additional charge, which is not how it works with traditional offline therapy. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. Julia, tell me, what cocktail goes well with uh, leading to your own demise? Amanda, I think you should just find the highest proof alcohol <laughs> in your bar, pour yourself a shot, take it, and we'll get back to Oedipus Rex. <laughs> Uh, yeah, at a at friend of the show uh, Misha's wedding late last year, their partner Aaron passed me. Actually, put in my coat pocket, and I found it later. A small bottle of moonshine, unlabeled, incredible, and I've been saving it. So maybe that's what this calls for. <laughs> you might die, but <laughs> we'll see. 
We'll see. I'll think about it. I'll like a what are the scamfluencers called that thing where it's like a trace of a substance in water. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, like um, not a tincture. It's it's like the homeopathy idea of like yeah. a little bit of something like dilution helps heal. Yeah, yeah, dilution I'll, and stuff like I'll that. I'll put a, a dropper of that in like a pint of water. Interesting. I love that for you. Also, uh, shout out and support to those doing a uh, dry January or dry indefinite. Uh, shout out to you. Yes. So now we flash back to Oedipus Rex, which is like the prequel, I guess, of Antigone. Yeah. Which I love thinking of that. Uh, like, it's it's so funny to me. It's like the Godfather 2 where they were like, okay, y'all loved Marlon Brando. Let me show you young Marlon Brando in Godfather 2. Yeah, yeah. You might be wondering how we got here. Screech! But screech. the screech lasts 12 years. So anyway, Oedipus Rex starts with Oedipus, the king of Thebes, and Antigone's father, who is dealing with a plague that has struck the city. Tragically relatable. Tragically relatable. The citizens are trying to offer up gifts to the gods, but nothing seems to be working at all. The priests approach Oedipus and beg for him to do something to save the city. And Oedipus says, I know it sucks. I just sent my brother-in-law Creon back again, hey. to the Oracle to ask what we should do. So cue Creon's arrival, who is like, hey, let's uh, let's talk in private about what the Oracle said. And Oedipus is like, no, the people should hear what the Oracle has to say. Oh, no. And Creon's like, okay, well, uh, Apollo says that the murderer of Laius, who like ruled Thebes before Oedipus, is in the city, oh. and he must be driven out in order for the plague to end. Wow, I am I am very into like an ecological disruption as a physical manifestation of some great imbalance and justice. Yeah. You know, like I think that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, it's like the the plagues and Moses in Egypt, I think, is very comparable in that sense. Yeah. Creon then does some exposition for the audience, basically. <laughs> he tells us how Laius was killed by thieves when he went to consult the Oracle and how the murderers had never been found because the Thebans were too distracted by the curse of the Sphinx, which you might remember just from us talking about Greek mythology in general, is a lion-bodied, bird-winged, face-of-a-lady monster that stood at the gates of Thebes and asked a riddle of travelers to allow them to pass into the city. But if they got it wrong, she would devour them. Immaculate vibes that I would suggest we all carry forth into this new year. Just a suggestion. Just as we idea. should. As we should. And as you may remember, Oedipus was the only person to solve the Sphinx's riddle. And when she was, quote unquote, defeated in her game of riddles, she threw herself from a cliff and died or in some versions devoured herself. We're going to we're going to cut the vibe short just just before Oedipus shows up. The yes. rest of the vibes we should channel. The rest of the vibes immaculate. We'll keep it. So Oedipus, very familiar with the Sphinx at this point. Oh, yeah. And so he decides that he is going to try and solve Laius's murder himself. Okay. The chorus enters and begs the gods for help, and Oedipus assures them that he will end the plague and asks the chorus if they have any information about Laius's death, right? He gets, like, no response from the chorus, and in his frustration, he curses the murderer and anyone who protects him, and then curses himself, saying that even if the murderer was a member of his own family, he would harshly punish them. Not by death, but by exile. Uh-oh. Bad. The chorus then suggests that Oedipus call upon Tiresias. Again, Tiresias showing up, the blind prophet. Shut up. Uh, who we already met in Antigone. And Oedipus is like, already done. Already sent for him. 
I'm on the ball, gang. We got this. I wonder if this is a situation where if you cast, like, you know how Alan Cumming has played the same role in Cabaret, like, many, many decades apart over the yes. course of, like, 40 years? Yes, yes. Um, and somehow gets hotter every time? <laughs> I feel like this could be the same situation uh, where I know he's supposed to be, you know, like, they style him very old and wizened and things like that. Uh, but it's possible it could be the same actor reprising, you know, a beloved role come back 12 years later to be younger Tiresias. I would love that for him. I hope that's what actually happens. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go with a real kind of New York character actor, like a, like a Colin Quinn or somebody. That's who I'm picturing. Ooh, interesting. I like that. So Tiresias shows up and Oedipus is like, okay, so do you know who killed Laius? And Tiresias is like, yes, I do, but I sure wish I didn't. Oh, shit. Oedipus is confused. Like, what kind of answer is that, my guy? Like, just tell me. From an oracle? Yeah. Yeah. Just tell me straight up, like, who killed Laius? And he, like, starts insulting Tiresias, like, give me a straight answer, guy. And Tiresias hints at what he knows. But when Oedipus starts accusing him of being the murderer, Tiresias is like, um, actually, you're the curse of the plague on Thebes. You're the murderer. And Oedipus is like, what the fuck? No, I'm not. What are you talking about? So he goes into a rage, telling himself in the chorus that Creon and Tiresias must be conspiring to overthrow him. Because, like, otherwise, why would he be saying all this, right? I mean, from one perspective, I, I definitely get it. Like, you know you know your own actions. And if someone says, it's you, you know, unless we're in Black Mirror, like, I, I understand why you're like, uh, no, the next logical explanation must be that you're lying. Exactly. So the chorus urges the king, like, calm, calm down, sir. Calm down, please. But at this point, Tiresias is pissed and he says, hey, Oedipus, like, you don't even know who your parents are, which Oedipus is like, very confused. Like, why are you bringing this up now? And also, I oh, think no. I do. But what? I feel like it's unusual to upset an oracle that much. I, maybe I'm taking this from like 50% the Matrix and 50% Greek mythology, but it seems like oracles are kind of, you know, impassive. Yes. You you would think that, like, this would be a, a character that is like, ah, yes, I have the knowledge of the gods and therefore, like, nothing can faze me. But no, this is just a dude who, like, sometimes the gods talk to him and he, like, passes on wisdom. Yeah. And, like, as we learn from a lot of Greek mythology, not listening to oracles is bad. It is. This is reminding me, I talked to my accountant this morning, and this is as if I asked my accountant, like, what do I owe in taxes this year? And then the accountant goes, ah, <laughs> uh, man. Like, that, that's the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> Yes, like you call for the prophet and you call for like the oracle and you're like, what do I need to do? They're like, Psh, man, you fucked. Bad. It, it, the worst. The worst possible. Basically, Oedipus is like, what do you know about? Why are you bringing up my parents? What do you know about my parents? And Tiresias answers with a riddle, which he like also mocks uh, Oedipus at this point. He's like, oh, aren't you good at riddles? Isn't that your whole thing? Whoa. <laughs> But Tiresias goes, and this is the quote from the, the play, he goes, The man you have been seeking all this time while proclaiming threats and issuing orders about the one who murdered Laius, that man is here. And then he continues, He will turn out to be brother of the children in his house, their father too, both at once, and the husband and the son of the very woman who gave birth to them. He sowed the same womb as his father and murdered him. Go and think on this. If you discover I have spoken falsely, you can say I lack all skill in prophecy. And then he's out. Damn, Tiresias. Just like drops the mic, leaves. I'm envying Aiden Quinn or James Gandolfini or whoever's playing this role. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, James Gandolfini would be so good. You know who would be also very good? Yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah. That'd Hell be a yeah. good one, huh? Or like maybe Bob Odenkirk as Bob Odenkirk gets older, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm, I like it. 
So at this point, Creon shows up as Tiresias leaves, and Oedipus is confused and angry and accuses him of trying to overthrow him and says that he wants to kill Creon for this betrayal. Creon and the chorus are both like, again, you are making this up in your head. Please calm down. And Oedipus is like, no, I know I'm right. (sighs) At this point, while he's throwing this tantrum, Oedipus's wife, Jocasta, shows up then and she's like, okay, babe, calm down. You shouldn't kill Creon. He's done nothing wrong. And Oedipus calms down enough to be like, I won't kill him, but I am convinced that he did something wrong. Hmm. So Creon leaves and Oedipus has this moment with Jocasta where he tells her about what Tiresias said to him. Jocasta is like, well, listen, I don't believe in any of the prophets. I mean, the Delphic Oracle herself told my husband, Laius, that he was going to be murdered by his son. And the only son we ever had was cast out as a baby. And we all know Laius was killed by a band of thieves. So, like, clearly the oracle was lying or was making things up. No! But then Oedipus is like, wait, something about that story sounds kind of familiar. (laughs) Tell me more. Oh, no. Oh, shit. So Jocasta tells Oedipus and the audience how Laius was killed at a crossroads right before Oedipus arrived at the city. And Oedipus is like, oh, fuck, I think I might have murdered Laius. This is bad. So Oedipus tells his side of the story about like how he was raised in the city of Corinth, but heard as a young man in court that he was not the biological son of the king and queen of Corinth like he believed. And so he went to the Oracle of Delphi to find out his origins. However, the oracle only told him that he would murder his father and sleep with his mother. And Oedipus is like, oh, fuck, okay, well, then I need to leave Corinth. So that never happens. So let me avoid this prophecy that was given to me by the oracle. Damn. So I'm just not going to spend any time around my parents ever again. Brutal. So leaving Corinth, he found himself outside of Thebes. And just outside the city, Oedipus was harassed by a group of travelers who attacked him and then who he killed in self-defense. There you go, Oedipus. You did, in fact, commit a murder. But it was in self-defense. So Oedipus right. is like, okay, shit, um, let me call on the shepherd, who was the only witness and the only survivor besides me of that. And maybe we can get him to either tell us the truth or, like, not talk and tell people that I am the, the murderer of Laius. So he and Jocasta leave, and the chorus does a little number about how proud men defy the gods, but no one can escape their destiny. I mean, this is a real question. Like, the plague isn't going to go away until he leaves the city, right? Right, but he also still fully believes that he is not the cause of the plague. He still thinks that Tiresias and all the prophecies up until this point are not true, right? And do you think the audience of this play is like, fucking idiot yeah exactly you're like man you're just messing everything up like if you if you like you you can't escape destiny and we'll talk about this in like sophocles's like themes of destiny and free will and stuff like that in a little bit but like so at this point a messenger shows up looking for oedipus but runs into jocasta and informs her that he's here to tell oedipus that his father polybus of corinth the king of corinth has died So he was sent to bring Oedipus back to Corinth in order for Oedipus to rule. And Jocasta is very happy about this news, which is kind of fucked up, Jocasta. Like, let's be honest. You just found out a man died. Jocasta, your father-in-law just died. Okay. Yeah. Because she thinks that since Polybus has died of natural causes, this proves that the prophecy is false. Right? 
But Oedipus was told that those weren't his natural parents. Yes, but he never got confirmation. He just, like, heard it from a person in court that he was not naturally born. I see. I'm using the word natural, by the way, in, like, Greek, you know, biological. We're talking about biological parents. Yeah. And natural is the term that would have been used in ancient Greek. We're talking about biological parents, though. Totally. So Oedipus arrives, Jocasta tells him this news with the messenger there, and they both rejoice in this. They're like, oh, thank God, it means the prophecies are all fake. It's great. But Oedipus is still secretly afraid of the other half of the prophecy, the whole like sleeping with his mother thing. It's like, Jocasta, are you sure you did not give birth to me? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's just like, well, I, well, my mother's not dead. What if I accidentally sleep with my mother? And the messenger overhears this, and he's like, oh, don't worry about this. I mean, the king and queen of Corinth aren't your biological parents. Oh, no. He uprooted his whole life for nothing. So the The messenger then reveals that he used to be a shepherd once, and he found a baby near the city of Thebes. And the baby is revealed to be Oedipus and that the shepherd had brought him to Corinth and given him to the king and queen of Corinth. Damn. Jocasta at this point realizes what is about to be revealed and is like, oh shit, oh god, but doesn't like tell Oedipus explicitly what she thinks is about to happen. Mm. So Oedipus wants to find the shepherd that left him in the woods, a different shepherd. And Jocasta is like, hey, maybe don't, maybe don't press into this. Maybe don't look into this any further, right? But Oedipus is like, no, I gotta know. Like, I gotta know my origins. Like, this is really important to me. And Jocasta is like, I gotta go and flees, right? Uh Uh-oh. Oedipus is basically like, oh, my wife is being, like, such a snob. Like, what if she thinks, like, is she really acting this way because maybe I'm, like, a commoner in real life and, like, not the son of a king and queen? Like, how how kind of rude and, like, snobby of her? Gosh. Uh-oh. Uh, but then he, like, turns to the chorus and he's like, oh, I'm finally going to find out who my biological parents are. And they, like, they, like, have this whole moment of, like, yeah, this is awesome. This is going to be great. I'm so happy for you, Oedipus. Never have a good moment in a Greek play. Never. <laughs> so the shepherd arrives, the one that he had called for, right, who had seen Laius's murder. And we find out that he was also the shepherd that left Oedipus in the woods as a child. Wow, the shepherd is really a main character. He really gets around. And so Oedipus asks him for information about where he came from. He's like, you must know who gave me to you. What's the deal? Where did I come from? And the shepherd at first refuses, but then when Oedipus like threatens him, because naturally that's what you do when you're king, mm-hmm. he informs him that the baby was from the house of Laius, that it was Laius's child, and that Jocasta had given him the baby to kill because the prophecy said that the baby would lead to the death of his parents. This is when Oedipus realizes exactly what is going on, and he runs off stage. I don't know why I'm surprised slash a little bit sad. It is it is the definition of uh, his name. He really did think that this was going to be a good moment, like a happy yeah. moment. And I think yeah. that's what makes it more upsetting. Yeah. Because he was like, well, I'm, I'm finally going to know my true origins, a thing that I have been thinking about for decades at this point, And I really want to know what's up. And uh, then it all turns on him. If only we listened to Tiresias. Better that we didn't know. Yeah. So meanwhile, the chorus enters, does their thing. They lament how Oedipus, the greatest of men, was brought low by his own destiny to kill his father and marry his mother. The messenger arrives to tell us, of course, what has occurred offstage. Jocasta has died by suicide. And while Oedipus arrived angry and cursing, like being like, how could you not have told me that this was the truth? 
when he sees her body, he sobs and holds her body. Mm -hmm. And then he takes the gold pins from her dress that are, like, keeping her dress on and stabs out his own eyes, claiming that he could not bear to see the world now that he had learned the truth of his fate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just want to commend you, Julia, on the uh, blood work job you did uh, back in 2009. It was very nice. And looked very convincing. Thank you very much. The key is you have to balance out the one that goes on your face can't have soap in it. But the one that ends up on the clothing has to have soap in it so they can get the blood stains out of the costumes. Smarty. That's what you learn in high school. (laughs) (laughs) How to take care of blood stains. So basically at this point, Oedipus arrives on stage, blood streaming from his eyes. Shout out to high school me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he laments the destiny that Apollo has cursed him with. He demands that the chorus banish him from Thebes, but the chorus backs away as Oedipus rages and curses his birth, his marriage, his life, and then goes further to curse all births, all marriages, all lives. Wow. Like really taking it to the extreme here. So Creon, who we haven't seen in a while, shows up then, and the chorus is like, dear God, do something about (laughs) all this. Look at him. And Creon goes to Oedipus and is like, it's all right. Why don't you go inside, Oedipus? We don't need to show everyone your shame, basically. And Creon agrees, like, okay, I will banish you as you want, but only if the gods approve of it. And Oedipus is like, yes, thank you. I believe that the gods want to keep me alive, so I will leave. And my sons are old enough to be their own men, but Creon, please, I beg of you, take care of my young girls and bring them to me so I can say my last goodbye. Okay. So Antigone and Ismene at this point haven't seen the entire play. They show up and they uh, all weep together. They hold Oedipus and he has he cries with them. He worries basically that his daughters will be doomed because in his mind, no man would want to marry a child of an incestuous marriage. And again, he begs Creon, please take care of all of them. Right. Creon, uh, not going to do that. No. Well, (laughs) so even like at this point, he like reaches out to take Creon's hand, but Creon refuses to touch Oedipus. Damn. And he tells Oedipus that he has to go and that he has wept shamefully enough for too long. All right. All right. Toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Wrap it up. So he sends the girls away and tells Oedipus that his power is no more. Everyone but the chorus exits, and they once again lament that Oedipus, greatest of all men, has fallen low, and that it is clear that only death can bring peace to someone doomed by the gods. And so, Julia, what do you think the vibe is in the theater at the end of this play? Is the audience like, damn straight? <laughs> like, what's what do they feel? So I think that's an interesting question, Amanda. Let me wrap up real quick with our final Oedipus play, because it's, it's very short in my mind okay. in comparison. But like, so the final Oedipus play is Oedipus at Colonus. And I know we're running out of time here, but basically Oedipus is in exile in this play. The conflict that we heard about in Antigone between Oedipus's sons is currently happening. And they believe that if they can get the right to Oedipus's burial rights when he dies, that will legitimize their claim, right? Sure. However, as we know, Apollo has prophesized a bunch of stuff about Oedipus, including that he will be buried on this holy ground that's outside of the city of Athens. And so Oedipus has made a deal with the king of Athens, Theseus, because he claims that Apollo has told him that if Theseus keeps Oedipus's grave site a secret, the gods will keep Theseus's house ruling Athens. Hmm. 
So later it's kind of revealed that Oedipus has seemed to have like disappeared, presumed dead, and that Theseus refuses to tell a mourning Antigone and his many where he is buried. And Theseus sends them back to Thebes in the hopes that they will be able to prevent the war between their brothers as the chorus tells basically the audience and everyone else that everything rests in the hands of the gods. And this is kind of where we can talk about what the audience would be feeling when they were seeing this play at the Dionysia, right? Hell yeah. At the time, and this is really important, we'll talk about the themes a bit, but what you need to know at the time was this was being performed like basically for the people of Athens. And Sophocles had a really strong opinion on how the politics of Athens were at the time. Basically, what he was noticing was that mortal law, the laws of men, were overruling what he considered the laws of the gods. And Sophocles believed that this was a bad thing to happen, right? The laws of the gods should preempt all laws of men. And that's fucked up that it's not. I see. And so everything that happens in Oedipus and Antigone is all about the fact that these men are trying to overreach what the gods have determined to be true and right and good and just. And you can't outsmart them. Exactly. So depending on what the audience thought of politics at Athens in the time, they were either like, fuck yeah, Sophocles nailed it. Or they're like, what the fuck, Sophocles? (laughs) You can't just say that laws are wrong because men made them. That's helpful context for sure. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the themes here, too, because like the Oedipus plays are both important to Greek mythology because they kind of codify the story of Oedipus. But they're also like important to the themes of ancient Greek life and the development of the Greek tragedy as a whole. So we see a lot of themes about the the power of the law, specifically in Antigone and the difference between laws of men and the laws of gods. So in Antigone in particular, we see that the where the laws of gods usurp the laws of men, like the chorus literally talks about how men's laws control the world, but they are always usurped when they cross over the nebulous liminal spaces such as burial rites. Mm -hmm. And that's where the gods come in. Yeah, where you do what is right based on what the gods intend and want and demand, not such trifling things as mortal laws. Exactly. So when Creon's argument throughout Antigone is like, oh, the good of the state comes before all else, before family, before religion... But like, if we know anything about Greek mythology, we know that the duties to family and to the gods are decreed by the gods. They come first. Yeah. So this is how Creon kind of oversteps and in the mind of Sophocles gets the ending that he deserves by putting the state before moral duties laid out by the gods. Fair enough. Good lens. And that's kind of why Antigone is like the protagonist of Antigone and not Creon. You know what I mean? No, totally. And then Sophocles, as we kind of talked about, really explores the themes of destiny and mortal attempts at free will. So like Oedipus tries so hard to avoid all these prophecies that are laid out before him. And his hubris is founded in the idea that he can avoid what has been ordained by the gods, right? That like what they have already said will come to pass, he can stop that from happening. And like even like we see that in that scene where Oedipus and Jocasta spend much of Oedipus Rex saying that they don't really think that these prophecies can be trusted, that they have the ability to avoid what has been prophesized. And several times we see the kings of Thebes insult the prophet Tiresias, thinking that their role as leader means that they are above the law of gods. And both Creon and Oedipus fall victim to their prophecies. And like I said, this is Sophocles telling the audience that the power of the gods and prophets is above reproach, especially since when he's writing the play, 
there is that shift in Athenian politics mm-hmm. away from the advice of prophets. It's fascinating. No. And uh, I mean, I think the, you know, the sort of unresolved question, the tragedy of it all is like, what if Oedipus hadn't tried to run from it? Did he engineer the circumstances that he fell victim to? Or would they just have happened some other way if he hadn't tried to kind of outrun it? Right, exactly. And that is Oedipus's hubris, that the prophecy comes to pass because he is so actively trying to avoid the prophecy because he can't see the truth that is in front of him and cannot accept it to be the truth. And that is why all of this happens to him. Fascinating. There was so much more here than I remembered. I know, right? It's both such a like timeless story and the fact that it is such a like kind of daring political commentary for the time that it is written is fascinating in both sides of the field. You know what I mean? It really is. Yeah. And uh, reminds me that, you know, art is always political. The circumstances in which a thing is made and published is always relevant. And I think it's a, a really fascinating text to revisit in our current circumstances. So thanks for bringing it to us. Of course, I'm always happy to tell a little bit more about Greek mythology. I know this year we're talking a lot about it's Norse, of course, but this was something that I really wanted to touch on because this is a part of Greek mythology and Greek folklore that I think is fascinating from both a historical and mythological standpoint. Julia, any chance to fan cast the gods you know I'm here for? Of course, naturally. And remember, conspirators, the next time that you get a prophecy from the gods, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.